Well, I didn't grow up in a church. I was traveling with sports all the time and um, I played softball up until sixth grade and then I volleyball took over my life and I played volleyball from fifth grade to senior year. My mom had me start coming around Mother's Day of my senior year of high school uh, and then I just kind of carried on and beginning of freshman year I didn't really try to pursue Christ. Then when I got to college, I kind of started, we had Bible study every week and one of my, my emotions and my outlook on a lot of things, uh, I realized that I'm definitely not in control and that um, I just kind of go with things because I know that's his plan, not mine. Go for a road. Let me do that. Ooh. Um, well, I didn't grow up in a church. I was traveling with sports all the time and um, I played softball up until sixth grade and then I volleyball took over my life and I played volleyball from fifth grade to senior year. My mom had me start coming around Mother's Day of my senior year of high school uh, and then I just kind of carried on and beginning of freshman year I didn't really try to pursue Christ. Then when I got to college, I kind of started, we had Bible study every week and one of my friends led it and so she kind of helped me grow towards God and then I had a friend who was in a car accident and it killed him and it just, normally events like that would turn people away from God but it drew everyone towards him more um, and that was just kind of my aha moment and I realized that I really wanted to pursue my relationship with Christ and then uh, some stuff went down with my family and my dad and we really struggled through it but um, God really showed his love through that. Fur Road Church has definitely been amazing with me. Um, my boss actually uh, talks to me all the time and then Katie came to me and asked me to help serve and I love every minute of it and they've just been really supportive and really worked with me. I was happy before, um, but I didn't realize how much almost smoother life would go as soon as I started really pursuing God and looking towards Him. And um, yeah, it definitely changed my emotions and my outlook on a lot of things. Uh, I realized that I'm definitely not in control and that um, I just kind of go with things because I know that's His plan, not mine. Go for a road. Let me do that. Woo. Oh, when I was a when I was a kid, I never really paid much attention to what was going on in church. I think that's normal. I don't think a lot of kids do. Actually, when when I was in high school, I would intentionally. I I always did the. Uh, communion and offering. We did it at the beginning of the service. So I always did that because I knew then I could be in the kitchen cleaning that stuff up while the sermon was happening. So I didn't have to sit in there. So I'm not trying to give you any ideas or anything, but that's, I, I never paid much attention in church. And that's actually why I, I have a bet going with a handful of our students that this morning, they aren't going to be able to give me a good synopsis of my sermon right after church when we're done. So we'll, we'll, we'll see if they can, but 
I don't have too high of hopes. Um, but in college, in college, I did start paying a little bit more attention uh, to, to the types of things that we would say in church and how the church year tends to move, how it's kind of centered around a few major moments in the year. Uh, and, and how much we talk about things like hope and restoration and death to life and I'm sorry and broken things being made new and uh, like Easter wasn't very long ago right this these were the things that we were celebrating or were supposed to be celebrating we talk about them often and and now that I've paid attention to it I, I've noticed something else happening since I've left college and been here for a little while I'm kind of just going numb to it. Right, we talk about these things a lot, but not near as often do we experience them. So I'm getting a little bit to the other side and just showing up and listening and going through the motions of what we do in church and not so much paying attention to it anymore again. But in the last few years, I have noticed something. Right, we talk a lot about redemption and hope and healing, yet so often here we stand one month removed from Easter and we don't have any more hope or anticipation of powerful movement from God in our lives than we did a month ago. Why is that? All right, why is it that something that we see so obviously in the Bible, dead things coming to life, lives being changed, broken things being made new, why are they sometimes so difficult for us to experience in the church? And that's the big question I kind of want to wrestle with together this morning. So let me frame it up this way. Peter, right, the story of Peter in the Gospels and in Acts is a story of a fisherman who eventually becomes the rock upon which Jesus builds his church. Right, he goes from being, from everything that we can see, not a very good fisherman, to baptizing 3,000 people in a single day to start the revolution that takes over the entire world known as the church. And in the middle, he walks on water for a second or two, and at one point, he even just drops everything and goes back to fishing poorly. So what is he experiencing? What's going on here? What does Peter experience that maybe we're missing? Uh, that's where we're going to go this morning. So I want to take a quick trip through three of the different Gospels to look at this story, catch three different perspectives of the same story moving forward. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. You can open up and follow along with me, or you can just read it on the screen. It says this, Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. These are some big words from Peter, and I have no doubt that he means them from the very depths of his heart. But when Jesus doesn't live up to expectations, when Jesus doesn't do what he was thinking Jesus was going to do, something changes in Peter. And let's jump over and continue the story in Luke chapter 22. We're going to pick it up in verse 56. It says, A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. 
And the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Can you sit in that for just a second? Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. My guess is that one way or another, this story can feel a little bit familiar to everyone in this room. Peter's not alone in this moment. We have all sat in this exact place I promise I will never do this. Here we sit, I just did it. Or if you're anything like me, I promise I will never ever do this. Here we are, I just did it again. And again, and again, and again. So Peter weeps, right? Why is Peter crying here? The obvious answer is because of what he had just done. But I think there's a lot more to it than that. And this lot more to it piece is so big Uh, so big that if we continue to miss this piece, then you and I are going to continue missing out on the life that we are looking for. The people that God created us to be, the thing that Satan is terrified of, we have to get this. If we want more hope, if we want to have a more powerful life, we have to get this, that consequences are obvious, but conclusions are not. And that statement won't make a lot of sense until we unpack it a little bit. But in moments like these, the consequences are usually pretty obvious and usually pretty immediate. But the conclusions that we are reaching, the things that we start to believe about ourselves in these moments, are not very clear. I don't question that Peter is weeping because of what he just did, but I think there's a lot more going on here under the surface that we don't see, we don't necessarily read, and I don't think maybe even Peter sees in this moment. It's this, just as damaging, just as damaging to Peter's life and his story long term is not just what he had done, but the way that he now sees himself because of what he had just done. We don't, we don't talk about this stuff enough in church. When I was in high school, I was on the basketball team, and I think it was my sophomore year, I remember preseason getting called into the coach's office and being told that I, uh, I was going to get to play varsity this year. Toss me, toss me my shiny varsity jersey because the varsity people get to wear the nicer jerseys, right? So I, I remember that, and I remember three games into the season getting called into his office again and being told that I was going to move into the starting lineup starting with this very next game. Remember how excited I was about this, and I have to tell you about this coach. This guy was really old, like, he, he was coaching basketball back before there were size divisions in school, so no 1A, no 5A. He actually took a rural school in Colorado with seven players, not seven varsity players, seven players to the state championship game against a Denver school. It's like, it like the movie Hoosiers. They'll probably make a movie about him someday. We had a tremendous amount of respect for this man. They lost that game. That doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> We had a tremendous amount of respect for this man. This was my coach. So being told by him these four amazing words, I believe in you, and that had an immense impact on me as a young kid. So we get to this game against Hanover High School, my very first varsity start. And we were not warned about this one particular player on the team. He wasn't very good. None of them were. Uh, I think that's why this was my first start. We won like 70 to 15 or something like that. I don't know. I just made that up. And the point is they were really bad. Um, but, 
th- this kid, he, he had already been in fights either during or immediately after every game up until that point that season. He didn't get to, s- I'm pretty sure he got kicked off the team right after our game or maybe the game after that. He didn't get to finish. He stood about this tall. He had a fuse. I don't know. He would just, he, he would get upset. He would say things. He would start fights. So anyway, we get to this game and guess who he's matched up against? Yeah, that's, of course, that's the way that it would happen. Uh, but we did not get into a fight. I will say that. So before I finish this story, just remember that. I actually held it in better than anybody else he had played up against that so far that year. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that is important. Uh, but after, after the entire game of keeping my mouth shut and my hands to myself, which was not easy, right, while well, he just said all sorts of hurtful things about me, my teammates, not our game. He had no room to talk about that. They were getting trounced. But in the game, like after, after the game in the lineup, as we're supposed to like shake hands and say good game, good game, good game, uh, I, in a moment of weakness, I said something. I won't repeat it, but like it was harmless in comparison, but certainly not about Jesus's love and forgiveness or anything like that. Um, I mean, his eternal destination may have been mentioned, but I'm not proud of it. I'm not. I'm not proud of it. But their coach overheard their guys talking in the locker room, and fortunately, thankfully, he did, uh, because he had to come in and he had to warn our coach about it. So apparently, this guy and a bunch of his friends had brought uh, their knives and other small weapons to school with them that day, and they were planning to wait outside the building for our team to come out and walk back to the bus so they could uh, jump us and do all sorts of other things. So the boys' team had to all be held in the locker room, even when some of us were done changing. We weren't allowed to leave. The girls' team was held in the gym, the cheerleaders, the coaches. Everybody had to be held together and escorted off the property by school security altogether. It was a little humiliating. Uh, but like I said, he didn't, he didn't stay on the team. But we had another coach, at the time, we had two coaches, Adam. He was the yelling type. He yelled every day in practice, uh, kind of like how I like to picture Corey is with his golf girls just screaming all the time. Right? <laughs> That's how I picture those practices happening anyway. But like, he came to the back of the bus, and he's just laying into us. He didn't know it was me that said anything, but like, he, he was just screaming at everybody, and nobody really cared. You could just kind of sit there. It's Adam. He yells. Uh, but when he was done, Coach Miller walked back. And Coach Miller did overhear us talking in the locker room. He knew that it was me that said something. And he just calmly, like way too calmly, walked to the back of the bus. And, and he said in his really deep voice, but almost unaudibly, he looked straight into my eyes and said, we'll talk tomorrow. <laughs> and then he just walked away. Like... I'm kind of sweating right now, just reliving it. Like, and I actually wrote that. That's written in here. As I, as I was typing this story, I wrote, I'm sweating right now because I was thinking about it. And like, like, coach, please, please just yell at me. Just scream at me. Let me have it. Like, I can handle your anger, but I can't stand your disappointment. Right? I can handle your anger, but I cannot live with the idea that you think differently of me than you did even just an hour ago. Now, what happens in these moments when we really screw it up or when something really screwed up happens to us, we get so lost in the consequences, in the busyness of dealing with the aftermath, that we miss the conclusions that start to form. 
That's why it doesn't matter in the context of what we're talking about today. It doesn't matter if it's something you did or something that has been done to you. All hurt in our stories leaves us in the same place. When we lose a loved one, and there are consequences and busyness to deal with. We don't have time to think about the conclusions. When we lose a job, there's still kids to provide for. There's still rent to pay. We don't have time to think about these conclusions that we're reaching, but they're happening nonetheless. There is never a mistake that you make or a hurt that you experience that happens in isolation. The enemy we have is the king of connecting these dots in our lives and in our stories to make sure that we make the conclusions that he wants us to make. We have an enemy in our lives that sees the person that you could become, the person God wants you to be. He hates that. He's afraid of that, so he tries to stop that. He wants to leave us in this place of hopelessness, of hurt, of pain and suffering because he knows that will eventually lead us to resignation, settling for a less than powerful life. So when I see Peter here in this story, I think Peter is thinking about more than just what he has done here in this exact moment. Peter is going, I I remember this time when Jesus performed this amazing miracle, and we were all going crazy, high-fiving and stuff, and then I said something really, really stupid, and Jesus looked right at me and said, get behind me, Satan. I blew it. I remember when, when he was walking on water and we thought he was a ghost, but when we realized it was him, I asked if, if I could walk on water and he let me do that. But then once I saw the, the waves, I sank and he had to rescue me, pull me up, and he said, you have little faith. Not my best moment. And then I cut off that guy's ear which I still thought was awesome, but Jesus just picked it up and, and he put it back on and he said, no, Peter, this is not... This is not how we're going to do things. And even just a few hours ago, I swore to him from the depths of my soul that I would not betray him. And look at me now. The consequences are beginning to take shape for Peter, but more dangerously to his story long term, there is the temptation for a lot of very serious conclusions to be made. Conclusions that I think he does ultimately make, and we get to see that happening if we keep going in his story. So let's jump over now to the book of John and read his side of the story. We're going to pick up in chapter 21, verse 1. It says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But at night they had caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the other side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. That first line, did you catch it? It said, Jesus appeared again to his disciples. 
If we don't read this in the context of Peter's whole story, it would be really easy for us to assume that this is just the consequence of what Peter has done. Peter was a fisherman. He met Jesus. Jesus said, come follow me. So he started his life as a disciple of Jesus. Then we get to this point. He disowns Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. Boom, reset. Go back to being a fisherman. You blew it. You blew it. This is just the consequence of what you've done. But I don't think this is the consequence of Peter's actions. I think it's just Peter's conclusion. In 1 Corinthians 15 and a couple of other places, we're actually told that before Jesus appeared to all of the disciples, he appeared alone to Peter. Peter and Jesus had a one-on-one. And we aren't told the details of that encounter. It's not recorded. Uh, But most likely, general consensus of the scholars and common logic would dictate that undoubtedly Jesus forgave Peter in that moment. Jesus would have said, I I know what you just did, but I just died. My blood poured out for you. We're good. Peter has been forgiven. The forgiveness issue has been settled, but Peter's heart remains unsettled. Does that sound familiar? Can't that describe a lot of us at different moments in our lives and in our stories? I think the road Peter is walking on is the same one a lot of us are on most of the time without even realizing it, which is why I think it's so important for us to talk about it. But what do you do? What do you do with all of this stuff in your life and story? With all of this stuff that you have done or has been done to you? Because in the context of what we're talking about, they're much the same. My parents had a rough patch in their marriage when my dad decided to have an affair. Right, that, was something, that was something he did. That was something my mom had done to her, but that left them in the same place. At this point in the story, neither one of them had much hope or anticipation for their marriage moving forward. They had come to the same conclusion. Most likely, our marriage will not survive this. They began to resign their hopes of a happy and healthy family. So in your story right now, where you sit, which term describes you better? Resignation or anticipation? Peter has already been forgiven, but he is not sitting in a seat of hope and anticipation. He is sitting in a seat of resignation. Peter, the rock upon which Jesus was going to build his church. Even those of us who have experienced the forgiveness of Jesus can still find ourselves in the same place as Peter, and that's this. Peter is on the verge of letting his past lower his expectations for his future. He's been forgiven, but he has not yet received everything he needs from Jesus. So if you're sitting here today and the seat that you are sitting in looks a lot more like resignation than hope, and anticipation, then neither have you. We haven't experienced all we need from Jesus, so what is it? Let's go back to the story and let's figure this out. So they get some good fishing advice from Jesus, and when they realize it's Jesus, Peter takes off and he jumps in the water and swims like crazy over to see Jesus. It's kind of like how snow just chases after Dan anytime he gets into that truck. The dog follows him everywhere. If you've never seen it, it's really funny to watch. Uh, But so he gets to the shore and he says, hey, Jesus, here I am. And Jesus says, hey, we have some fish. There's a campfire here. Let's eat breakfast. He doesn't even talk to Peter. But this is how we know that something is still missing. Why is Peter in such a hurry? You've already seen Jesus, yeah. You've already been forgiven, yeah. So what's the rush? 
Right, something in his heart is still missing. We miss this often in Peter's story. We miss it in our own. Let's keep reading and see what it is. We're going to pick up in verse 15. It says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And if you skip down to verse 19, Jesus says again to Peter, come follow me. In the midst of this limited amount of time that Jesus has left on earth, his focus is entirely on one heart. The heart of a man who denied even knowing him just three days before. There's so much hope in that for all of us. People may change their minds about people, but God never does. Regardless of what you have done and regardless of what has been done to you, Jesus still believes in you. Peter just needed something. And if we want to find the life that we are all looking for, we have to get this, that moving from resignation to anticipation requires restoration. Restoration, this really big church word we throw around a lot and often don't experience, this story is not about forgiveness. This story is about Jesus restoring Peter's heart. So if what we need is restoration, let's pay attention to how Jesus does this. Let's look at the little details of this story because it's pretty incredible and I think it gives us a blueprint moving forward. It's really early in the morning, right? What happens early in the morning if you're around roosters? They crow. What happens when Peter hears a rooster crow? He's reminded of the lowest moment in his entire life. They're fishing, They would have fished a lot, but this time feels really familiar. They fished all night and didn't catch a thing. Then this stranger shows up and says, try the other side. This feels like a lot like the morning that Peter first met Jesus. So Jesus takes him back to that moment in his story. And they're sitting around a campfire. What happened the last time Peter was around a campfire with Jesus really close by? He denied him three times. They're eating fish. They would have eaten a lot of fish, but Peter could sit there and remember when Jesus took a couple of fish and some bread and fed a ton of people and how excited they all got. There were leftovers, and then he said something really stupid, and Jesus called him Satan. And they're on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Peter can sit there and remember Jesus walking on that exact same water not too long before. He started to do it too and then nearly drowned. And Jesus looked at him and said, you have little faith. And Jesus just asked Peter three different times if he loved him. That third time, it hurt Peter deeply, it said. So if Jesus knows that three times is going to hurt Peter, why not just ask him twice? Because how many times did Peter deny Jesus? You see, every single part of this story is designed to remind Peter of a little part of his story. 
but I don't think that's designed as a punishment. It isn't set up to hurt Peter, although that does happen. It isn't set up to make him just relive these moments and make him feel the shame, the regret, the helplessness, and the pain all over again. Jesus is walking Peter back through each of these moments in his story, not so that he can relive the pain of them, that does happen, but so that he can reinterpret these moments. So Jesus can redefine these moments, so that Jesus can redeem these moments. This is what restoration in our lives is supposed to look like. This is what Jesus wants and needs to do in every single one of our lives. So what if the path to restoration in our lives is a journey in and through our story, not so that we can relive the pain that does happen, but so that we can, with Jesus, reinterpret, redefine, and redeem these moments. This I'm talking about is all the work of John Eldridge. He pioneered Ransomed Heart Ministries. They do a lot of intensive retreats and things. He has books, Wild at Heart, Captivating, and so on. Uh, I don't have time to get into the details of all of his stuff. He has a whole lifetime's worth of work behind him. But let me strongly encourage you to look up Ransomed Heart John Eldridge. If you Google ransomed heart, it should be the first thing that pops up. I'm just kind of bringing up an idea here, but if it sounds interesting, if you need restoration in your life and in your story, there is so much more for us to talk about. This is dead things coming to life. This is broken things being made new. This is rising up out of ashes that you may not have even realized that you're in. Part of the program is to write out a life journal where you go back into your story and write out every significant moment. Right, we're looking for things that have hurt you, no matter how insignificant they now seem, and things that made your heart come alive. Because where is the enemy trying to lay seeds in our lives? In the things that hurt us and in the things that make our hearts come alive. And if we don't if we don't actively and consciously redefine these moments in our lives with Jesus, they will unknowingly control our future. There is a glory to your life that the enemy wants to shut down. Peter could have not been restored, right? He could have just been forgiven and gotten along just fine as a fisherman and never even really knowing what he is missing out on. And we talk about this often in our culture, just moving on and getting over things, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps and simply moving past the pain in our stories, getting over it, moving past the moments that make our hearts come alive. You can do that. You can live pretty well that way. But all it does is completely remove you from the driver's seat of deciding how these moments will impact and define your future because they do one way or another. And we have to stop allowing these things that we have done and the things that have been done to us to define our lives. We have to deal with these things and the consequences as they come, but more so we have to dig in and change the conclusions that we have made as a result. So what are you doing with all of that stuff in your life and in your story? So the truth for most of us, most of the time, is Nothing which means we don't even realize how these things are steering our lives. Forgiveness is immediate. Right? Most of us in here this morning aren't looking for forgiveness. That is the start of the journey. And if you haven't experienced forgiveness from Jesus, that's what we need to talk about right now because that's the beginning of the journey. But forgiveness is immediate. 
Restoration takes time. I'm on a journey right now, and I continue to learn more and more about it every single day. It keeps getting better and better. And you know, as sweet as those four words were to hear from my coach, I believe in you, you know it was even sweeter? The conversation we had the, next, the very next day when he said these five words, I still believe in you. People may change their mind about people, but God never will. God wanted Peter to be the rock upon which he was going to build his church. And here's the beautiful truth for all of us. Whether it's the guy on the street corner asking for change or the mom that lost her kids because of an addiction or that one kid that all of our students in the youth group try to convince me that we don't want around because of X, Y, and Z, or whether it's the person that really hurt you or something that you did again and again and again, the past can be redefined, and your heart can be restored, and the story isn't over. Will you pray with me? God, thank you so much for for believing in us no matter what. God, thank you for the plans you have for our lives and the hope that we have to just live a powerful life that shows your glory to the whole world. God, I'm so grateful for people that you've worked through in powerful ways like John Eldridge who can help us to find these things in our story, help us to work through these things in our story. God, I ask that You give all of us the courage to look back through our lives and to walk through these things, these moments that have hurt us, these moments that have excited us. And God, I ask that you step in our stories with us and help us to redefine them, reinterpret them, and redeem them. We love you so much. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.